0: This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast.
1: I don't think I'm going to be surprising anyone or uh, making anyone perk up and be shocked when I say that these are challenging times in the media world. It's challenging times in radio, challenging time in TV, challenging time for sure in newspapers, digital, the digital stuff is cutting into revenue streams and everyone's looking for a way to stay relevant, stay afloat, all those kinds of things. Profits are down, revenues are down, costs are still there. So a number of Canadian newspaper publishers have gotten together and have approached the Canadian government, the federal government to ask for some for a grant and the the amount that's being thrown around is $350 million, but a grant of kind and that's per year that would help fund, help prop up, help keep alive the Canadian newspaper industry, the print media industry. It's not really all that different the proposal from what's happened what happens in television what happens on some digital platforms, what happens in the magazine world. This is not all that unusual, but it would be new for newspapers. Well, joining me to walk through this, because there are, this is not as easy as just saying, hey, let's just bring on the money. There are other considerations that go into this. The editor-in-chief of the Hamilton Spectator, Paul Burton, joins me. Paul, thanks for doing this today.
0: Uh, My pleasure, Scott.
1: Uh, When you first heard about this, What was your immediate reaction to the idea of something like this for newspapers?
0: Uh, Well, my immediate reaction was uh, that the optics are not good. Um, You know, the CBC gets um, criticized a lot for uh, both uh, um, accepting money from the government and therefore going easy on them, which I don't think is the case, but it hardly matters what i think if if some people think that uh that they go easy on the government because they are subsidized or uh, in, indeed funded by them then i don't suppose it really matters that being said I, I don't know if the general public quite realizes the crisis that faces uh us not really uh, i don't mean us as a newspaper or media industry as much as i mean as a democratic society, uh, you know, I was just looking at a poll today that says most people feel that they'll be able to get uh, plenty of local news without newspapers or, or local media. And I, I just think that's naive.
1: Well, let me do I don't usually do this, but let me give you a period of time here, whatever, a couple of minutes to make the case. Why should people care if local news? Not just a, not necessarily just a spectator anywhere. If local papers were to fold, why would this matter? Because, as you say, people say they can get it from bloggers. They can get it from other news sources. There's no what. Well, what's the big deal? It's a. It's a. It's. It's just another part of the media apparatus that's gone. But thing. The, the whole. The gaps will be filled in elsewhere. What do you say to that?
0: Well, I. Uh, First of all, in terms of newspapers, I think that uh, it's it's well accepted that newspapers, local daily newspapers, and other uh, weekly or community newspapers, provide a great deal of the media that is then picked up. uh, Sorry, provide a great deal of the news that is then picked up by other media. Not exclusively, of course, everyone is creating news, but the newspapers are leading the charge in most. Let's just say for the purpose of this argument, most Ontario cities. I'm sure it's true across North America, but I'll just use Ontario cities because I know them. Then let's assume that we we are not then covering uh, city hall, school boards, the courts. Then we're not therefore holding our elected representatives to account. They can do what they want. And it is really one chink in the armor of democracy. I hate to be so so um, dramatic about it, but in fact, uh, sooner or later, that's exactly what it will become.
1: Okay, and so when this idea then comes forward, and we're going to get to the, the, the challenges of this idea in a second, the one thing, or one of the pieces of this that has been talked about is, in order to do something like this, even to consider it, one of the pieces that makes up the framework of the idea is the necessity to define what journalism is, because if it's, if you can't define journalism, then literally anybody who has a blog anywhere about anything potentially could tap into this fund and say, well, listen, I write about what's happening in my neighborhood or my opinion is everyone. So I know this is the broadest possible question, but what in your mind, if you can, what is journalism then? What is what we're talking about here that needs to be protected?
0: Well, uh, fair enough. You're you're correct in that all kinds of people will be able to tap into that fund, and I don't think there's a problem with that. I don't know quite how that will happen. I think it's early days yet to to try and figure out how that might happen. But I would say that newspapers, local radio stations, local TV stations have a long history of, uh, of providing reliable news and information to the community. They have a brand to protect. They correct their mistakes. They um, they take their uh, role in society very seriously, and uh, therefore, the people are, who are reading them can rely on that news. I'm not so sure that's always the case with startups or uh, you know basement bloggers. It's not necessarily not the case. Some of them are excellent, but uh, there's nothing really to prevent anyone. And that, these are, these people are now all over the. United States, we can see them, and probably in Canada, but um, I think that's indeed a danger, especially in an era of so-called fake news. I'm sorry to bring up that topic.
1: Well, it it is a topic. I mean, there's no question about it. So do you know of any other places other than, uh, and I'm not being sarcastic here, but other than banana republics or dictatorships or one-party governments, do you know of any places where there is government sponsoring of print media?
0: Well, you know, I don't, uh, Scott. I don't know the business well enough, but I'm assuming that there are there are advantages or, uh, or or similar similar things in Britain, and I would expect we would be able to find them in Europe too. I, I just don't know, and I, I expect that the Heritage Committee does know that.
1: So the, the positive side, what you're pointing out is the need for media, whether again, whether it's newspapers, local media of whatever kind it is. And, and honestly, I think, Paul, even the people who are listening who might be um, cynical or skeptical, or I think most people agree with that on on premise. They may disagree with something the local media has said, but they understand. And I think most people would agree with the concept. If someone out there doesn't agree, send me an email. I'd love to hear from it. Radley at 900chml.com. But. So if we assume that most people believe that there is a value in local media, how do you do this? And you touched on it, where you now have government partially sponsoring, and I can't think of another word for it, or partially paying for that. Because the one thing that we need in this country and that I think we treasure when it comes to the media is the independence of the media. We don't want to have pravda. We don't want the perception that we have Pravda. So, how do you? How could you balance those two things?
0: You know that 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 for sure is the crux of the argument. And I don't know. Uh, I have no doubt that uh, we have an independent uh, CBC. That the BBC, for example, is independent. But there are optics there that will always be uh, an obstacle and a challenge for those organizations. And. Therefore, the newspapers will have to take those on too. Uh, it, it might be a small price to pay. Well,
1: let, let's—I mean, let's use the CBC's example for just a second because it, it is the one place in this country that we can point to, and other than PBS, I suppose they get some government funding. And NPR down in the states, there aren't a lot of them in North America that we can point to. And you, Paul, you touched on it right off the top when you, when you came on the CBC, because it gets its funding. There are those who argue that it is beholden to the people who give it the funding. And if you look at the last federal election, the Stephen Harper Tories wanted to slash funding to the CBC, the Justin Trudeau Liberals wanted not just to bring that back, but also add to it. And so anyone who's looking at this is saying, well, gee, I wonder who the CBC is going to root for in the election. There's a self-preservation clause here. That That is, as you just alluded to, that is a difficult thing to try and dance around it, it it may be impossible to dance around you may yeah. just have to accept it
0: uh, i i agree it it it, uh, it it's a problem for optics and as you say it may be something we just have to deal with i think the alternative is the thing that we want to think about what is the alternative to have no local news gatherers in towns like hamilton or any other um, city uh, this is this is a this is a scenario i just can't imagine and, and i and i shudder to think of the results even if even if people do not necessarily read the uh, news from uh or listen to the news from city hall most people are glad that we're sitting there watching uh our politicians to make sure that they're doing things in, a, in, a, in an orderly and honest way and i think Uh, I don't think there's any way to underestimate the importance of that. And unfortunately, I think most people are just sort of ignoring it. And I don't think that we can do that for much longer.
1: Paul, over the years, and I I believe they still do, um, the city of Hamilton has bought ads in the Spectator's, bought ads in the local papers as well. It has spent money on the local papers. Have you ever had anyone call in and say, look, because the city of Hamilton spent money on you, you are taking the city of Hamilton's official side on an issue. In other words, they've put money in your pocket, therefore you are are doing their bidding.
0: I can't recall, and I doubt that it has happened, but it wouldn't surprise me if people did do that. This is what, you know, people... We live in an age of conspiracy theories, and people overcomplicate things a lot, I I think. So can...
1: And again, this is, this is a, a, a um, hypothetical question because we're not there yet, but do you believe that newspapers or other media could retain their credibility if they accepted government money? Or do you I, believe I, perhaps, let me, let me just finish with one more thing, do you believe that in order for this to happen, the government would have to set up a, an arm's length agency that somehow was perceived as not being an arm of one party or another to make this work?
0: Well, I think that they should, but I don't think that'll matter. I think that people will still attack uh, the media for being in one pocket or another. That's just the way it's going to be. In terms of whether I think that newspapers will still have credibility, with most people they still will, and I have no doubt that most newspapers will uh, will not change the way that they uh, cover the news, though any any more than they'd change the way they covered a, a big advertiser or... You know, a, a family member of, of of an owner or something like that. Newspapers have, uh, not all of them, but most of them have been pretty good at at, at being independent thinkers that way. And I, I have no reason to believe that will change in the future, regardless of the funding model.
1: Yeah, the flip side of that would be maybe it wouldn't be the media that would change too much, but if a government came into power that was not loving the coverage they were getting and they needed to slash some costs that maybe that may be the first place they look then let's let's save the 350 million bucks there's somewhere we can cut
0: yes but maybe by that time uh, the media will be back on its feet for whatever reason i mean that, just because we're going to get a, uh, just because we might get a subsidy from the government doesn't mean we're going to give up looking how to fix the model the current model which is broken in in a in a rapidly changing world we're we're still going to be trying to uh to do the business the way that uh, you know, the, the best, as best we can.
1: Does, the, just before I let you go, does this, I haven't heard it that I recall, has does, has the Spectator taken a public corporate position on this concept yet?
0: Uh, the Spectator hasn't, but we are a uh, uh, sister paper of the Toronto Star, and, you know, we, we don't have the same editorial positions as they do, but the Toronto Star, Star's publisher, John Hondrick, has been, very clear, and, and has been one of the main leaders in, in this in this effort to get uh, government involved in in, in in whatever way. I'm not sure about this particular model, but I know he's been uh, he's been active in on this with, with indeed most of the newspaper publishers in Canada.
1: I appreciate the time. Hey, just before I let you go, um on a completely and thoroughly unrelated topic, I know you and your family have a history and have some roots and some ties to the Yukon. Earlier today, earlier in the show, we were talking about the sour toe cocktail. Have you ever tried that?
0: <laughs> I've heard of that.
1: You you uh, have not you've uh, not sampled it when I, you've been up you in know, Dawson City? You know what?
0: <laughs> I I might have I might have. I'm, I'm, just, I'm not sure of what exactly I was drinking. I, I, I tend not to believe that all the things I hear. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Paul Burton, editor-in-chief of the Hamilton Spectator. Thanks for doing this tonight, Paul. I appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. It's a, um the, the not the cocktail, the other stuff about the media. It's a really, really... Important Now, look, let me stop for a second. I know that some of you are saying, well, of course you're saying this because you're biased because you work for The Spectator and you work for CHML. There's really only one branch of the media in this city you're not working for. Therefore, of course you're going to say it's important. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. I am biased. I will grant you that I'm biased. I have a biased opinion about this. But I think that most people... While they may disagree with editorial positions that are taken by a paper or by a radio station or by a TV station, while they may disagree with columns that are written, while they may disagree with photo choices, in other words, they may disagree with things that appear in the media, whether it's national media or local media. And we all disagree with stuff that we see in the media. You're not alone when you see that. I disagree with stuff. There are things in the spectator that I I work for the spectator. There are things in the paper that I disagree with. But I don't expect that I'm going to agree with everything. I don't agree with everything that every person ever says. You can have a difference of opinion. But I think that beyond the disagreements about the specific topics or the specific points of view, I don't think there are too many people that honestly look at our democracy. And again, as Paul says, not to get too erudite and too hoity-toity here, but I don't think there's too many people that look at our democracy and say, you know what? We would be far better served if we had no media watching City Hall, watching Queen's Park, watching the House of Commons, watching the police, watching the whomever. Nor do I think we would say we would be a better city, a better place if the successes and achievements of people from Hamilton were not really covered because there was no place for that. I don't, I don't, I don't believe. Tell me I'm wrong. If you believe I'm wrong, I'm happy to hear you, but I don't believe there's too many people who say we would be better without any local media. The fact that you're listening right now says that you believe that it's better That we're a better city for having local media. You have other places you could be listening to. I'm glad you're not, but you have other places you could go or things you could do. So I don't know how this would work, but it just seems like somehow we've got to find some places we have to keep here and elsewhere. We have to keep the media around somehow, whether it's me, it doesn't have to be me. I mean, I'd like it to be me. But we just, it, it, it was here before me. It'll hopefully be here long after me. We need to have it or else we lose something significant in our, in our society.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on
1: AM 900 CHML. You may have heard in the last little while that Calgary is seeming to get its ducks in a row to begin making a bid, or at least putting the pieces together to make a bid for the 2026 Winter Olympics. The, the twist here, if there is a twist is that unlike most Olympic venues, most cities that decide to host an Olympics, Calgary hosted already. They hosted the Winter Olympics in 1988, so they have a lot of the facilities still in place. And the plan here, it seems, is that they will refresh them, update them, recycle them, and reuse many of these facilities, which would really, theoretically, keep costs down. That's the twist that most of the other Olympic cities that have ever made a pitch for the Games don't bring. And what would be those costs? Well, I'm glad you asked what those costs would be because the folks there in, in Calgary right now, 2026, so we're talking nine years out, are talking about a budget of, in today's dollars, $4.6 billion. But they're saying we'll bring in $2.2 billion in revenues so you and I and the rest of Canadians who pay taxes will only be on the hook for about $2.6 billion dollars in funding, sorry, 2.4 billion dollars in funding, which is well below the roughly seven billion that Vancouver apparently, although we never really know, but apparently spent on their games in 2010. Michael Haney is the director of Western University's International Center for Olympic Studies. He is the expert on all things Olympic. He joins me now. Michael, thanks for doing this today.
2: Hey Scott, thanks for having me. Where
1: exactly when people start throwing out these numbers, where do they come from?
2: Uh, They come from cost comparisons. Uh, As you said, that the uh, committee driving this bid ran against previous games. Uh, The Calgary bid is noteworthy for the fact that they actually tried to factor in the potential cost overrun. So there's a 10% kind of buffer built into this $4.6 billion assumption. So in that regard, you could say this bid... May not be as unrealistic as some of those that we have experienced during earlier games. On the other hand, it's still nine years to go, and we all know what that can do <laughs> to the numbers, that kind of time period, of course.
1: Well, and, and Michael, one of the other things about this, and, and please correct me where I'm or help me out here, but I can't remember the case where an Olympic budget was presented, and then the final numbers came in below or at the budget. I can't remember any cases other than those who have been above budget. Am I missing one?
2: You're missing one, and that is in the famous case of the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. Uh,
1: Peter Uberoth of course. Okay, yeah,
2: That's yep. right, Yeah. So they ran a very uh, original campaign, and as you were rightly saying, they could rely on pre-existing facilities through the professional sports teams and the extensive university sports infrastructure in that area. So the L.A. games actually came home with a surplus, but that is just about the only example of that.
1: So should we then, if, if L.A. using existing facilities or many existing facilities, if they were able to do this within the confines of what they said, should we then be believing that Calgary could do the same, or should we still be skeptical because we just, in modern days anyway, we just haven't seen this?
2: Well, we should still be skeptical in particular since, even though they can re- reuse some of the existing facilities, they have already indicated that they need a a new hockey arena, of all things. Of course. And D, a new field house, which, of course, for the Winter Olympics, are some of the major cost drivers. They also will have to renovate the Oval, which is still a the speed skating Oval, which is still a world-class facility, but that has aged, of course. They will probably have to do the same at the Canmore Nordic Ski Center, also a world-class facility. And as far as I can see, they'll need a brand-spanking-new ski jump. The old one is considered obsolete by now, I think.
1: And I suppose, uh, what happened to the Athletes' Village from Calgary?
2: Well, that has gone into general housing, and yes, they also need a new Athletes' Village, and that, at this point uh, pegged at around $450 million in uh, construction costs.
1: Well, the reason I, that one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is, A, obviously because of this news that Calgary is, is in the news again talking about this, but also there was a report that came out maybe a couple weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now. Um, we know that Sochi and Beijing had astronomical price tags for their two Olympics, but they are autocratic societies, regimes where they can pretty much do whatever they want. So no one's going to tell them, no one's going to vote them out for going crazy with this stuff. So that's, that's whatever that is. But... According to the World Economic Forum, I looked this up, London, their costs overran by 76%, again, according to that body. But the report that I'm referring to that came out a couple of weeks ago says Rio, that was supposed to be $4.6 billion. Sounds like a very familiar sounding number because that's exactly the amount that Calgary is talking about. Rio came in at a little over $13 billion. Again, I'm looking at these numbers and I want to believe that with recycling and reusing facilities that we could, in this country, be smart enough to be able to keep costs down. But every single case that I can find scares me.
2: Well, and you're quite right, of course, because I think that even reusing the facilities, which, of course, is a good thing, but even that will not prevent these budgets from creeping up as we go through the years and approach uh, the actual event you cannot really peg these kinds of budgets over that long time frame. It's just not possible. And we should also keep in mind that this is a very current topic, of course, the whole issue of security Mm. that has to be provided for these games, as you can well imagine, under present circumstances. And that costing doesn't even show up in these budget developments because traditionally uh, security costs are met by the federal government and provincial governments look after facilities that has been the traditional division of costing for those kind of things and the security budget at this point is estimated to be at least 600 million dollars for calgary 2026
1: yeah and and is there any reason to think that would suddenly drop
2: well i i don't see so uh, the person driving this bid, in fact, is a former police officer. So he is, of course, fairly knowledgeable with security matters. And his argument was that the games could be structured in a way that you would have facility clusters and athlete village clusters. And if you have clusters for which you have to provide security, that could lower budget costs as well. Uh, I am still skeptical. That also sounds a lot like gated communities to me in a way, which kind of isn't exactly the olympic spirit
1: you want to create uh, we always hear when we talk about the olympics and and when we say okay why do you want to have an olympics in your country and there are a couple reasons and i think there are some very good reasons and i i mean you you study this i don't believe you're entirely a cynic on the olympic movement i think you also see the benefits but before we get to what the benefits might be one of the things that always comes up as a Perceived or proposed benefit are the economic spin offs that would come from hosting the Olympics. First of all, what are the economic spin offs? And B, do we believe that those economic spin offs amount to the amount that we believe they do?
2: Well, the folks in the Calgary bid make the claim that they will generate about, right now, they have $1.8 billion of economic activity. And some of that is, of course, newly generated economic activity. But other activity is just a displacement. You can buy a ticket for the Olympic Games, or you can spend the money on buying yourself a gift card at Chapters, you know, but you're not going to eat your $100 bill. <laughs> so uh, some of the effects that are attributed to the Olympics locally are withdrawn from other areas of economic activity.
1: So it would have to come mostly from tourism then?
2: Tourism and, of course, well, construction creates economic benefits, undoubtedly, because there has to be a lot of construction, operation, maintenance. There's a lot of economic activity that is generated. But A, we would want to know how much of that ends up being paid by the taxpayer. Uh, B, how reliable are the estimates? And here again, the, the economists who study these issues say, well, so far, there isn't, hasn't been a, games, a single game where these pretty uh, large claims about economic benefits and spin-offs have been verified. There is, in fact, even an argument, according to some economists, to say that the 2000 Olympics in Sydney very successfully went actually created a negative impact.
1: Well, one of one of the things, and Sydney is a perfect example because I recall when Sydney was on. One of the things that the Olympics were going to do was when you watch that, and they were, uh, in my recollection, among the most joyful and fun games that existed. There, it was it was a very upbeat Olympics, and one of the things that was supposed to happen was everybody saw Australia and said, "I got to go to Australia. That looks like so much fun." The people down in Bondi Beach, man, they are having a good time. I got to go there. Do we have evidence that the Olympics lead to an enhanced amount of tourism in the after of the Games, as opposed to during them? Do we get the sense that all these people who saw these images all decide they're going to go visit those places?
2: Yes, there's evidence for that, but the evidence also shows us that the effect flattens out pretty quickly because once the Olympics have gone themselves, the venues are typically not particularly worthy to visit, and if two years out from the Vancouver Olympics, two years out from the Sydney or the Calgary Olympics, you feel a motivation to visit Calgary, it's more likely the proximity of the Rocky Mountains than the Dome. you know, so we have to be fairly skeptical about that one.
1: But let's talk about the facilities for a second, because I know there are Olympic places, there are venues, cities uh, Athens comes to mind We've all seen those uh, those websites that show the abandoned facilities in Athens that look like a ghost town. I know Sarajevo is another one that um that falls into that category. But calgary is is it not is Calgary not kind of a shining example of using the facilities the way they're supposed to be? Because you could look at many, if not most, of the medalists that Canada has produced in the Winter Olympics in two thousand and ten and two thousand and fourteen. And point to the facilities in Calgary and say they were largely, if not directly, responsible for the training that provided those athletes with the chance to win.
2: Absolutely. You are spot on, especially as far as Canmore is concerned and the Oval. They're absolutely unique, shining examples of a positive knock-on effect for the development of Olympic talent, absolutely. But (laughs) two shining examples don't make a tendency, so... Overall, you rightly said the facilities in Athens have been boarded up. The facilities in Rio are decaying as we speak, and that's only a year ago. Even Beijing, with their very ambitious plans, haven't been really able to make permanent, regular use of some pretty stunning facilities. And Sochi? Sochi, well, it's kind of it's sinking back into the subtropic, the environment that it has implausibly been built in.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but if we if we in Canada though, if Calgary has, been, has shown that it can actually do this, could this be the exception then, Michael, where we say, you know what, uh, if we spend the money here, unlike a lot of these other places, we can get a long-term benefit in this country to having these facilities upgraded for the next 25, 30, 35 years to help our athletes. Can it this be the exception? Well,
2: could very well be because Calgary has provided a good example, as we just discussed. So, I mean, I have been a recreational user of the um, over myself when it's open to the public, you know. So, I've rumbled around the track.
1: <laughs> <laughs> How'd you do? Did you set any world records?
2: Well, I didn't twist my ankle. So. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to be humble. So, uh, yes, from that point of view, Calgary can look back on a very good precedent, and personally, I kind of like Calgary's chances, if they can garner a local support, because I look at the competition so far, and the heavy hitters have bowed out again already, so Stockholm is gone, in Davos and Switzerland is gone, Sion is now the official Swiss candidate for 26. And they would give Calgary one further money, but they have to get past the referendum on the bid first. And that leaves Erzurum in Turkey, which I know nothing about. I apologize. And Almaty and Kazakhstan, who have been in the mix before, so Innsbruck might declare. And for Austria, hasn't been determined yet. So at this point, if the committee can get buy in, especially from the city administration. The mayor is still pretty skeptical at this point, I understand. Uh, I have to say it's, it's a long ways out, but I kind of like Calgary's chances.
1: I what think. about the IOC, though, Michael? Because I always have the feeling that the, the folks that sit around the gold-plated table in the IOC's offices uh, see themselves in some ways as empire builders. And if they look at this and they say, well, Calgary's already got what they need, Let's go somewhere else where we can force a country to build something so we make an impact on a different part of the world.
2: Well, they've had to eat a lot of humble pie lately, so they have certainly changed their attitude, which you can tell by the fact that they have changed their bidding process. and They have been trying to streamline it, and they have been trying to scale down things simply because of the, the scale impact that the event tends to have on hosting cities and regions. It's just massive. So there has been some kind of scaling down or attempts to scale down on part of the IOC, actually. Uh, the bidding process has been simplified for the summer games and it probably will be streamlined for the winter games. They will put out their guidelines a couple of months from now, in October, I think. So uh, the IOC is very well aware that there is increasing resistance against the event, simply by virtue of the scale and the impact that it has. So, and the folks in Switzerland cannot simply ignore that. Uh, and from that point of view, from the IOC perspective, it would make a heck of a good story to say, look, we go to Calgary and see us reusing all these facilities. That would be positive take-up for that kind of story, of
1: course. Just have a minute or so left here, but w- I mentioned Sydney, and I mentioned the fact that Sydney was seen by so many people as such a fun game, and I that's the summer games, obviously, in 2000. I think for most people in Canada, the Vancouver games just seven years ago, seems longer than seven years ago now, but it's Gosh. those games just seven years ago were an absolute high point of their feeling of being Canadian and of building the country and our Canadian experience and all the rest of that stuff. I know I know. I feel that way. I know I still feel very fondly about a lot of those moments. How much is something like that worth?
2: Well, my answer is as good as the next guy's, you know. The one thing I would say, yes, it can do a lot for national pride and national identity, <laughs> but the, the, the slight problem is that this only works when your team is successful. That's true. In Vancouver, Canada did own the podium, whereas quite a few folks thought that the program shouldn't have that kind of an aggressive title. But it worked. In Canada led the gold medal standings. But if you host the games in Calgary in 26, and the, the Canadian athletes come home without a decent metal hall, who
1: knows what that is going to do. That's that's true. Although, you know, I did the math. I'm very poor at math, I grant you. But I did the math. And if it is, in fact, a $2.4 billion outlay to the public sector, that they would have to do it. And that's assuming the budget is accurate. That's assuming there's no cost overruns. That's assuming security comes in where it should be, all the rest of the stuff. That works out to about $67 per Canadian. And at that cost, I think if you were to say, Michael, to everybody, considering you're going to sit in front of the TV set for the next two weeks and you are going to get TV for 24 hours a day, most, many people, maybe not most, many people would say, ah, for 67 bucks, I'm okay with that. The problem is, I don't think it'll actually be 67 bucks a person by the time we're all done.
2: I completely agree. We have no idea what it might be yet. It's too far out. And I don't know of any recent single construction project that came in on budget, <laughs> especially over that kind of timeline, you know. So.
1: Well, we're hoping here in Hamilton, we've got an LRT project that's about to start. We're hoping that they've learned how to come in on budget on certain construction projects. but, And then maybe we can teach Calgary how to do it afterwards.
2: I, I remain hopeful.
1: <laughs> Michael Heine, <laughs> Director of the Western University's International Center for Olympic Studies. Truly appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks
2: for having me, Scott.
1: Look, the Olympics, if you think back to 2010, and it's not very far to think back, almost everybody listening, I'm assuming, unless we have some four-year-olds listening tonight. And if you're four years old, you should be in bed by now. But if you're, for everyone else, you will remember the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. And if you remember the 2010 Vancouver Olympics, there are two things that struck me about those games. The first one is, up until about 10 minutes before they started, Everybody was saying these things were going to be a catastrophe. There was no snow and there was problems. Remember they built the highway to Whistler and it wasn't finished and they had problems and all these things. There were a lot of people saying this was not going to be a successful game. We were very skeptical. But the second part is it turned out to be one of the greatest two weeks for most Canadians ever. We had our first gold medal on Canadian soil or snow. We had women winning hockey, we had speed skaters winning, we had John Montgomery carrying a pitcher of beer through Whistler after winning the skeleton. we had Sidney Crosby's goal. Every single thing went right, and it was two weeks of the greatest weeks of being a Canadian. It really was. Even if you're not a diehard sports fan, almost everybody says, you know what, if that cost hundred dollars per person i don't know what the cost was i'm throwing out a number here randomly but if that cost if that week and that experience and having that feeling cost a hundred dollars per person and i could recapture that i think a lot of people would say yeah okay all right, you know what? $100 is $100. I'm not poo-pooing it, but that was that good for most people that they would say, for $100, I th- you know what? For all the time I spent in front of the TV, for that level of entertainment and that amount of entertainment and that amount of joy and excitement and country building and community building and on and on and on and on, I would pay 100 bucks again to do that. But as Michael says, the risk you take is that you don't recapture those feelings. You don't recapture that excitement. And at the end of it, then you say, okay, what did we get out of it? Because at the end of Vancouver, you could clearly say, we got something, maybe not tangible, but we got something emotional. We got something spiritual almost. I mean, sorry for, again, being so overwrought, but we got something legitimate out of that because we felt great as Canadians, everybody wearing their red and white Vancouver Olympic mittens, remember those? Everybody, it was a giant celebration across the country, the likes of which we haven't seen in a long, long time, and it went on for two weeks. If we could recapture that, if you had a guarantee that we could have those feelings again, I think most people would say, do it. Boom. Sold. No questions asked. Build up Calgary, make the pitch. 100 bucks a person, yeah, it's $400 for a family of four. I understand that, but boy, that was worth it. But there's no guarantee. Sports does not offer guarantees. Plus, we don't know what the costs are going to be. They will be lower than Sochi. You can say that with absolute certainty. It's not going to cost $50 billion, but will they really be $2.4 billion to the taxpayers? I'm not going to put my money on that. We'll see, because we're going to be hearing a lot more about this, because there's a lot of skepticism in Calgary right now about this. There are folks who really want to have it, uh, there's there's folks who are really concerned about it. I understand. They're in the middle of a recession right now over there. Things are tough economically. Most Canadians will say, yeah, do it, but we're not the ones putting our money down to do it. We don't have to pay the taxes, at least not all of it. Oh, but one thing, remember we've talked about a million times on this show, whenever a government comes and says, hey, we got something free for you. We're going to give you money for this. Around here, it was the LRT, but it could have been anything. Well, remember the Olympics, because you know what they're being told in Calgary? If you do this, a lot of the money that is going to be coming to you is free money. You don't have to pay for it. It's federal money. It's free money. This is how it works. We get money for the LRT, but our taxes go to pay someone else's free thing and someone else's free thing. Nothing is free. Nothing is free.
0: The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900, CHML.